turn, if you would, with me to Second Peter, the book of Second Peter. It's toward the back, if, uh, if you're not super familiar with it. But uh, while you're turning there, you know, the Apostle Peter, to me, I think is one of the most uh, colorful character in all of the scriptures. You know, he's a man, I think, that we can all really relate to and who we probably uh, can identify with. And we see him pictured in the gospel accounts. He's often the one who's, you know, he's rushing ahead when he should have been waiting back or he's waiting back when he should have been rushing ahead or he's talking when he should have been listening or he's you know wielding the sword when he should have been standing still and we certainly sense that Peter is a very passionate man he's a man of conviction and he's a man who's full of of life and at the time he was like what many are today he was a, a courageous but kind of a careless Christian Right? Again, very colorful character. But what I think makes him especially colorful as we look into his letters to the church is that I think what we see is that above all else, he's a man of contrast. He's a man who knew firsthand and he experienced his own deep brokenness and then that, that restoring love of Jesus and then years and years as his faith matured. And now we see a Peter who's writing these things that he knows so well. He's writing these things to the church, the dangers of persecution. And he's writing uh, to the church, encouraging us to move on ahead into holiness. And as we look this morning at just really just the first 11 verses of his second letter, what we see is this now very patient father of the faith who's trying to pour into us some of that godly wisdom. And then he tries to draw out of us these godly qualities that he says are already within us. And he does this as any good encourager of the people should. He starts by beginning with what we have, and then he turns and he focuses on what it is that we need to add to that. So let's pray and then just ask the Lord to show us and to to be our teacher this morning. Father, we do thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for those who've gone before us, Lord, the example that they give to us, and the writings, Lord, that they've left. Father, we pray that as we look into the words of Peter, Lord, that we're mindful today of the fact that these are your words to us. Father, we pray for your spirit as the author, Lord, that he would be the one to give us understanding. We pray that you'd quicken our hearts today, Lord, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, if you look at Peter's first letter, which was written about A.D. 64, it was written just before the severe outbreak of persecution against the church. And you see in that letter, Peter's emphasis is really on the grace of God. And then you look, though, here in his second letter, right, this final word to us, the church, written probably just before his execution, likely from a Roman jail in about A.D. 67. His emphasis is now on our growth, right? Our growth specifically, he'll say, in the knowledge of God. And that word knowledge doesn't just mean this intellectual understanding that we need to have of some kind of truth, although that's certainly part of it. But it means really a living participation in that truth. It means knowing by experience. And this is the type of knowledge 
that Peter encourages us to grow in. And yet, as I said before, before he starts to tell us where we're headed, he starts with where we are and the things that we have to build on. And if we look in these first four verses, we're going to see Peter talk about our gifts of grace. In verse 1, he writes, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, what's unique about this is that different from the greeting in his first letter to the churches, Peter adds this term bondservant to this claim of being an apostle of Jesus Christ. And that Greek word translated bondservant, you may have heard it before, it's a word called doulos, right? It means slave. And in the Old Testament, just like in in first century Peter's time, you know, after six years of service, slaves were ordinarily set free. And yet if a slave wanted to remain in the service of his master, he could continue to do that, now a slave by choice. And so this is exactly what Peter was. He was a slave by choice. And yet, why? Well, because although Adulos was committed to serve his master for life, the master was equally as committed to provide for and to take care of that slave. And now it makes so much sense because if we know Jesus at all, it makes all the sense in the world, doesn't it, that Peter would want to be a servant of his because really who would care for and who would provide for him better than Jesus would. So here at the close or at the, you know, the close of his life, the peak of his apostolic authority, I love it because in his own mind and in his heart, he was a slave for Jesus first and an apostle for Jesus second. See, I think it's significant because here as Peter matured and he grew deeper in that fellowship with Christ and in the knowledge of him, he started to value that relationship that he had as his servant even more. And so Peter's experience for himself is his hope for us as well, that as we grow in our knowledge of the riches that we have in Christ, we can't help but grow in our love for him. We can't help but now want to serve him willingly out of love and not just out of obligation. So Peter continues. He opens this letter in verse two, uh, the beginning of verse 1 here with this beautiful description now of this abundant Christian life. He writes, To those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, if you've studied Peter's letters, it's kind of intriguing to note that throughout his writing, here this big, powerful Peter uses this peculiar word, precious, right? In his first letter, he talks about the precious blood. And here in this verse, he talks about precious faith. Later, you'll see him talk about precious promises. And then in the next chapter of the same book, he talks about the precious stone. Although it's maybe not a word that we'd expect to find in the vocabulary of a big fisherman like Peter, precious is a perfect choice here. Because what this word literally means is something beyond calculation. And, you know, certainly when we think about the faith and the blood and the promises of the Lord... Those things are all of incalculable worth, right? They're definitely things that would qualify as precious. And Peter calls it here this like precious faith, 
which again tells us he's writing to fellow believers. And I think it's significant because what it means is that our standing with the Lord today is no different than what it was of the apostles centuries ago. It's not like Peter's saying, hey, look, I'm an apostle, so I'm up here in first class, and the rest of you can take a seat back in coach somewhere. Right? That's not at all what he's saying. You know, that they, just like we, they obtained, they received their righteous standing before him based on his sovereign grace, rather than based on anything they did or anything that we do. Right, because and only because he reached down to us in the person of Jesus Christ, who Peter says there is both our God and Savior. Now, don't miss this because this too is significant. What this means is that Peter is calling Jesus, right, this man with whom he walked and lived for three years, Peter is calling Jesus God, right, because God and our Savior are not two different persons. They describe one person, Jesus Christ. And for those of you apologists here with us this morning, you know that this is one of those passages that ranks right up there with other great passages in the New Testament, which very plainly, very clearly teach that Jesus Christ is co-equal in nature with God the Father. You know, and as a co-equal in nature... Here it says that Jesus Christ has these three, there are these spiritual blessings that can be secured through nobody else. The first one we see right here in this verse is righteousness, right? When we trust Jesus as our Savior, his righteousness becomes our righteousness, and we're given immediately. We have that right standing now before God. We could never attain this righteousness, could we? It's a gift. It's a gift that comes from God to those who believe. The next two blessings we see in the rest of verse 2, Peter writes that grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, review for most, perhaps new for some, but grace, right, is God's favor to the undeserving. You know, God in his mercy doesn't give us what we do deserve, right? What we do deserve is eternal punishment and separation from him. But in his, in his mercy, he hasn't given us that. But God, in his grace, gives us what we don't deserve, right? He gives us reconciliation and forgiveness and fellowship with him. You know, and Peter tells us that that grace is channeled, right? The apostle John confirms that grace is channeled to us through Jesus Christ, And the result of this experience is peace, right? It's peace with God. It's the peace of God. And Peter continues here to tell us, in fact, he uses this kind of a mathematical term. He says that God's grace and peace are multiplied towards us as we walk with him and as we trust in these promises, that the blessings come through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So it's this intimate, this personal relationship with our Savior, that's the way that God's grace and his peace are received in our experience and are multiplied in and through our lives. So the more knowledge you have of Jesus Christ, the greater understanding that you you develop that our God is truly a God of grace. 
You know, those of you who are familiar with, uh, you know, Dr. Billy Graham know that at the beginning of his ministry, you remember they used to refer to him as God's machine gun because he was deliver. you know, you remember that? And that, you know, as he went on in his knowledge of the Lord, he found himself becoming more and more oriented towards grace. So much so that, that there are some today who kind of scratch their heads and they, they wonder how he can be so gracious to so many. And yet Dr. Graham has such a way, I think, of being incredibly embracing without compromising. And if you read some of his own writings, he explains that he, as he grows older in the Lord, he's more and more amazed by the grace of the Lord. And the same should be true of each of us. The older that we grow or the more mature that we become in the Lord, the more grace-oriented we will also become. You know, we realize that the Christian life is all about Jesus, right? It's all about the, the undeserved, unearned favor that he so lavishly, freely um, gives to us, right? And it's all based upon his finished work on Calvary. And then there's that peace, right, that all of that provides. And, and Peter goes on to explaining that we experience this, right, this mathematically multiplied blessing of grace and of peace as his divine power is imparted to us. Verse 3 says that his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. So our Christian life begins with faith, right? It's, there's that saving faith in Jesus Christ. But as we, as we grow, right, we start to, to know and to experience Jesus Christ more personally, right, as we grow in our knowledge of him, we also start to experience God's power. And that power produces life and godliness, right? We're born into the family of God, right, on that very day that we give our lives to him by faith in Christ, we are born complete, right? God gives us everything that we're ever going to need for life and godliness. There's nothing more that needs to be added. You remember that Paul writes to the believers in the book of Colossians. He says that you are complete in him. And notice, similarly, Peter is telling us that everything we have need of pertaining to life and godliness, he's not telling us that it will be given to us. No, what does he say? Instead, he says that everything we need to live an abundant, fulfilled life, everything that we need to live like Christ, Peter says, has already been given to us. See, this is radical. Because there are so many of us that don't grasp this truth personally, or we just refuse to remember it, don't we? We think that we still need to be pursuing some kind of key, and that if we can just find it, then we'll be able somehow to unlock the secret of life. It's almost like we're looking for the combination to the padlock of godliness or something. But what Peter says is wonderful. He says that God has already given us these things. Right? Not most things, not a bunch of things, not some things, but how many things? All things that pertain to life and godliness. Remember, there were false teachers in Peter's day, just as there are false teachers today. They claimed that they had this special teaching, right? the secret 
that would add something to the lives of Christians. But what Peter knew is that there's nothing new that needed to be added. You know, think of it this way. Just in the same way that a a normal baby is born with all of the parts, right, all the equipment that he or she needs for life, all they need to do is grow. And in in the very same way, we as Christians, we have everything that we need and only need to grow. But there are so many Christians, and no doubt some of us that are here this morning, we get so hung up on this point. And so we read and we search for what seems to be missing in our faith instead of just taking God at his word and at face value. His word says that this divine power has given us everything we need for godliness, all the things that we need for an abundant life. We can simply grow in this knowledge of that fact. And that will help us to live abundantly and in a godly way. And, you know, in just the very same way that that baby is given this definite genetic structure that determines the way that he or she will grow, we as believers, we are genetically structured to experience glory and virtue, as it says there in verse 3, right? To grow in our likeness to Jesus. All that we need are the same things that that baby needs. We need the right nutrition. We need the right nurturing. We need the right training and the right teaching. And so we have this divine power. We have all the things that pertain, Peter says, to life and godliness. They're coming to us through our growth in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. And so look again at the very last few words of verse 3. The Lord Jesus who called us by glory and virtue by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So God has not only given us all that we need for life and godliness, but he's also given us his word, right? These great and these precious promises of God. And that's the thing to educate and to equip and to enable us to develop in this life of godliness. Oswald Chambers wrote this. He said that education is a bringing out of what is there and giving it the power of expression, not packing in what doesn't belong. And spiritual education means learning how to give expression to the divine life that is in us when we are born from above. So in the Bible, right, we have all of the truth and all of the principles and all of the promises that we need for growth in life and and toward godliness. And it's that Bible that actually imparts that life to our souls. Because when, when a sinner believes on Jesus as the Christ, the spirit of God, you know, uses the word of God to impart that life and that nature now within us. And that very same sweet baby that we've been talking about that baby shares the nature of its parents. And so, too, a person who's been born again now shares that divine nature of God. Right? That lost sinner, right? That old man, the Bible says, is dead. But the Christian, now the new man, is raised and it's alive because we now share in that divine nature. And it's now this new nature inside of us, that's what should be driving us. You know, you just have to look around you and you see that nature determines 
appetite, right? Pigs want slop. The Bible even says that a dog will even eat its own vomit, right? But the sheep, what do the sheep desire? Well, the sheep desire green pastures. So if nature determines appetite, and if we have God's nature within us, then we should be developing an appetite for those things that are godly and that are pure and holy. Nature determines behavior, right? Bald eagles fly because they have an, the nature of an eagle, and a dolphin doesn't fly <laughs> because it has the nature to swim like a dolphin. So our behavior now ought to be increasingly more and more like that of the Father and of our example, Jesus. Nature determines environment, right? Squirrels, they climb trees. Moles don't climb trees. They burrow underground, right? Fish, they swim in the water. And we ought to be creating for ourselves an environment that's suited to this beautiful new nature that we have. Finally, nature determines association, right? Lions travel in prides and sheep go around in flocks and fish swim around smartly in schools, right? So we ought to be associating with those things and and these people now that are going to be true to the new nature that we have, right? So in light of and as we look at all of this, how can we help but to see that the only normal and fruit-bearing life for the child of God is a godly life, right? Because we possess this divine nature, Peter also says in this verse, he says we've completely escaped the defilement and the decay of this world. Now, if you look, you know, the craziness of the world, most everything we see around us can be traced directly to lust, right? Whether or not you're talking about the lust for money or sex or esteem or approval, lust is just simply that thing that says, I need more of this, whatever it is. And it's exactly from this kind of mindset that Peter says we've been delivered. So if we're trying to feed the new nature, if we feed the new nature the nourishment of the word, we're going to have this decreasing interest in the garbage of the world. But if we're making provision for the flesh, as Paul says, if we're feeding ourselves the junk food of the world and of our culture, well, then our sinful nature is just going to continue to kind of lust for those old sins. You know, godly living is a result of cultivating and of nourishing and of strengthening and of developing that new nature that Peter tells us already exists within us. And so it's that growth in this that Peter's going to address next. He so beautifully has encouraged us with where we are and with all that we have. And now he's going to kind of turn this corner, right, exhorting us forward to where we're headed, to adding those things that we need from our gifts of grace, now in the rest of the, our, our passage today, to our growth in knowledge. In verse 5, Peter says, but also for this very reason, or because we're partakers of this divine nature, he says, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. So here is one of those great New Testament 
lists, right? One of those teaching tools from the ancient writers. And it's one of these lists that just seem to stick in our heads and they just stay in our hearts. And Peter starts the list with, but also, and then adds, for this very reason, to make it very clear that there is something beyond the new birth. There is something beyond the receiving of this new, wonderful nature. There's growth, right? But also, you could translate as in light of this. So, in, in other words, in light of the fact that we have everything we need to enjoy life fully and to live godly, in light of the fact that we've been given hundreds of, of promises so graciously in light of the fact that we're free now of the grasp of lust, we should be those who add to our faith diligently, right? Those of you, some may remember, Pastor Dave always used to say that Christianity is like a greased pole. You're either climbing up or you're sliding down. There's no standing still, right? Once we're born spiritually into God's family, we then need to grow spiritually. And this takes diligence and earnestness because a lazy, careless Christian doesn't grow. You know, God gives to us, his children, he gives us everything we need to live godly lives, but then we need to apply all those things that he's given us and be diligent and be disciplined in the way that we live. You remember that Paul exhorted the Philippians. He said they were to work out their own salvation, for it is God who works in you. Now, what that doesn't mean is that we're to work for our salvation, right? But what it does mean is that we need to work to the outside the things that God is working on the inside, right? Our outward actions should reflect that inward change in our nature, And then Peter lists for us in these three verses, he gives us these seven spiritual characteristics that ought to be seen increasingly in each of our lives as believers. At the end there of verse 5, he says, Add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. Now, he's not suggesting that we should add these virtues the way we stack things up on a pile, like one on top of another. But it's more the sense that each virtue helps to develop the next virtue. They're kind of more like sections of a telescope, right, that one leads into another. And, and just like the fruit of the Spirit that the Apostle Paul writes about in Galatians 5, these qualities are going to grow out of a life and of a vital relationship with Jesus Christ. It, as Christians, it's, it's sometimes just not enough for us to let go and let God where it pertains our, to our spiritual growth, as though our growth were God's work alone. We need to be involved in and we need to be devoted to this process. Many of you here know Bob Nicholson. He's a, a dear brother in our fellowship who has a fantastic coaching ministry that helps people with these very things. And he shared with me this story. He said, I had a client who wanted to help, uh, wanted help in finding a job. I asked her to share her story. And she said, I've prayed, fasted, studied God's word, confessed my sins, and waited upon the Lord. Why hasn't God given me a job? 
Well, have you applied for any positions? No. Have you networked with people that you know to see if they know of any openings that might work for you? Well, no. Is it possible that you might have to do something to make things go in your favor, he asked? I, I have been. I already told you. So what am I missing spiritually so that God will give me a job? Right? Now, this woman was so well-intentioned. She doesn't go to church here, by the way. I'll just say that right now. So well-intentioned, but suffering from, I think, a serious misunderstanding of what Peter's trying to teach us. You know, dear Ola Johnston would always say to us, you need to work like it all depends on you and pray like it all depends on God. Amen? That's great advice. You know, literally what Peter's saying here at the beginning of verse 5 is that we need to make every effort to bring these qualities alongside, right? Giving all diligence and again, if you, if you do an exhaust, exhaustive word study of the original Greek text here, what you find is that the word that Peter uses there for all, it means all, right? All. That we should be making diligent effort to grow all the time, right? 24-7. And Peter says here that it starts with faith, right? Everything for Peter goes back to that. And it's, it's that conviction that what Jesus says is true and that we can commit ourselves to his promises. It's that unquestioning certainty that Peter had and that we need to have that the way to happiness and to peace and to strength on earth and in heaven is to accept him at his word. That's where it begins. And it's on top of that bedrock then that Peter says we're to add virtue. Or literally, we're to add excellence. And it's a great word that in the original text, it has this sense of courage and it has this sense of, of chastity, but it means so much more than that. Um, Barclay defined it as that virtue which makes a man a good citizen and friend. It is that virtue which makes him at ec an expert in the technique of living well. So what it basically means is that we should be good at life, right? And Peter says that this should take work, that we need to be diligent about this. You know, as Christians, we're supposed to glorify God because we have God's natures within, right? We've been saved to advertise his virtues and to let his glory be evidenced in our lives. And so the best way to demonstrate our faith is by simply living a life of excellence, and so Peter continues now. He couples the adding of virtue to our faith, and then the next to virtue were to add knowledge or gnosis. You've probably heard that word in the original text. It's this specific word that means specifically practical knowledge. Right? It's a different knowledge than what's called the Sophia knowledge that comes from wisdom of and knowledge of the divine things. Right? But... Gnosis and Sophia should work hand in hand because this knowledge that Peter is encouraging us to add here, it's the ability to apply to particular situations that ultimate practical knowledge with that spiritual knowledge that the scriptures provide to us, right? It's that practical knowledge that guides us to skillfully deal with the day-to-day -day challenges of life, 
You know, and as we look at these foundational first virtues of faith, virtues of faith and, and excellence and knowledge, and we consider Peter's exhortation to add them to our lives, what we see is this picture that's developing around our involvement in personal growth in knowledge that's foundational to life skills and then living them out excellently. Okay, so for those of us who are a little more simple-minded, it means we need to be diligent to devote time to getting good at living life. Right? We need to be diligent to devote time to getting good at living life. So where do we even focus? Where do we start? Well, we start wherever we have challenges to meet in whatever specific season of life we're in. Or we need to prepare ourselves for something that's ahead. Which just means that if we're married, we should devote ourselves to becoming excellent at marriage. If we're single, we should devote ourselves to becoming excellent at being single. If we're parents, or if we're grandparents, we should devote ourselves to becoming excellent at those things, right? At parenting, or at grandparenting. If we're working, we should devote ourselves to being excellent workers. Or if we're approaching or if we're in retirement, we should devote ourselves to becoming excellent at the stewardship of our resources for that time of our life. Right? We should all be devoting ourselves to becoming excellent at financial stewardship or at clear communication and at interpersonal relationships and at being neighborly neighbors. Right? Right here, right now. And if there's something specific that we want for ourselves in the future, we should be devoting ourselves now at, to becoming excellent at the things that are going to help to prepare us for that thing that we want later. And, you know, and this is why, as much as I love Life Church, this is why we're so encouraged and we're so excited about Pastor Matt's vision for this summer's life groups. Because if you'll remember, the life groups are going to be organized around some of these things and should provide us all with the opportunities that we need to devote ourselves to becoming excellent at these different things in our lives, whether it's parenting or finances or evangelism, right? We're also planning some special workshops on marriage and one on, on life stages. And, of course, there's the school of ministry as an equipping resource. All of these things aimed at helping us to develop excellence in these areas. Now, unfortunately, what happens with most of us is that we get so busy with life that we have no time for life. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. amen. Right? And certainly we don't have a whole lot of time for learning and for training diligently to excel at life. And I will openly confess up here before you this morning, and my wife will bear witness, <laughs> that these things are not my strength. Right? I am a very sort of go with the flow, take it as it comes, let's just adjust and move on, get through it kind of guy. And I would suspect that there are some of you out there that are like me. And if there aren't, then I'm preaching to myself today, but... <laughs> You'll have to bear with me. And yet, what this creates, doesn't it? It's a situation where life is just something that happens to us instead of something that we're involved in making happen. 
right, through excellent living and employing these biblical principles of diligence and growing in these different areas. Now, I don't want anyone here today to misunderstand me. This is not simple, is it? I don't want to oversimplify it, and neither did Peter. And that's, notice at the beginning of this list, he used another one of those mathematical terms, didn't he? He said we're supposed to add these things. Remember back in verse 2, he talked about those blessings of God that were being multiplied in our lives. Think about that. Isn't it interesting that when they come from God, they're multiplied, but when we're working them out, they have to be added. Because as I'm relearning watching Michelle teach our kids at home, multiplication and addition both get you to the same place. Adding it just takes a lot longer, doesn't it? Peter knew that, see, and that, that's precisely why he includes, I think, these next two virtues, because these next two are these character qualities that we're going to need in succeeding in our training, because he says to add faith, uh, faith and virtue, we're to add knowledge, and then we're also to add next self-control, right? Simply our emotions, our passions are in their proper place so we can use them to serve us, Right in staying focused, those should drive us in staying focused in our training. You couple that with perseverance. This is a great word, right? We're freely choosing to bear with the difficulties that we know are going to come because we're trying to achieve a result that we want from this training. And again, in the original language, it's a word that means much more than just kind of grin and bear it, make it through. It has this backbone and it has courage to it. It means to be willing to suffer hard or difficult things because of a forward look that you're maintaining. And one writer commented, describing it, it's the the courageous acceptance of everything that life can do to us and the transmuting of even the worst event into another step on the upward way the upward way to becoming a good counselor or a a skilled and loving parent or a a fantastic husband or a fantastic wife or a great, whatever it is that you're trying to become. So self-control has to do with handling the pleasures of life, but this word perseverance relates primarily to handling the pressures and the problems of life. It's the ability to endure when things get difficult. Now, step back with me for just a moment. You see what a beautiful picture I think we have developing here as we're diligently adding to our faith virtue and as we're becoming excellent in facing the challenges, we're rightly applying practical knowledge for living and all of it is undergirded with this maturing character of self-control and of perseverance. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I do know that to me, both the prospect of that and even the process to get to it, that sounds pretty exciting to me. That sounds like a full, rich, vibrant existence. And especially as you wrap all of those things up in these last couple virtues, notice the next we're going to look at, don't focus on the way we work with ourselves, but they really are going to focus on the ways that we deal with and that we look at and the ways that we relate to those around us because he mentions godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. 
add those things on, he says. Now, godliness just means God-likeness, right? And originally, it meant to worship well. And it describes an individual who's right in their relationship with God, and therefore, they're right in the relationships with fellow men. You know, it's where we're giving, we're working to give God the things that he's due and man the things that they're due. Like gathering together, giving God what he's due by worshiping him, but being good employees when we're out on the job. He talks about brotherly kindness, right? That affection for the people that we're serving and love, right? If we love Jesus Christ, we also should love the brethren. Now, have you ever noticed that there's this kind of a religious devotion that it, it seems to me almost separates people from those around him or her, right? It, it, where the needs of the people around us almost become an intrusion on our times of prayer or of study or of meditation on the word. And it's almost like we can develop this attitude that the ordinary demands of human relationships in our lives they're just a nuisance, right? And yet he talks about brotherly kindness. And this is a, a virtue that breeds this desire to get involved in personal relationships. And, of course, love is what brings with it this willingness to make room in your life for people and to make sacrifices in your life for their good. And, of course, that's the love that Jesus communicated so clearly at the cross, right? This is the, the, the kind of love that's last in Peter's list. Of course, it's agape love. And it's the kind of love that God shows for sinners. It's the love that's described in the love chapter, right? 1 Corinthians 13. It's the love that Paul says that the Holy Spirit produces in our hearts as we're walking in the Spirit. He writes to the Romans that the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And this is the thing that Peter says should wrap all of these other virtues together in one. Right? And then he ushers us right into this powerful promise of the result of our diligence and our cooperation and our growth in these virtues. Because in verse 8 he says that if these things are yours and abound... You will, neither, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this type of Christian growth that Peter's talking about here, just in verses 5 through 7, it's going to result, he says, in a spiritual effectiveness and in productivity as there continues to be this growth in grace. Now, that being said, any of us who've tried have found out it is impossible, right, in our own fallen human natures to manufacture these seven qualities of Christian character, right? Just studying through this list alone, I know, can be a little bit tedious. And I know this because you guys all look super tired now, <laughs> right? I've been watching over the last 15 minutes especially as the ameners stopped their amening and as the note-takers stopped their note-taking, and as the nodders started nodding off a little bit, right? <laughs> but listen, I don't want you to be discouraged, and I don't want you to be defeated, but I, I want you to hear this clearly, is that these qualities of Christian character aren't 
manufactured, right? But they are produced by the Spirit of God when we're working and when we're cooperating willingly in a partnership with him, right? As we're diligently trying to add these things to our faith, and we're doing it because we're keeping always at the forefront of our mind that it's because we have what? Because we have this divine nature inside of us that we can grow spiritually, that we can develop this kind of Christian character. And, and if we do that, then it's God who receives the glory when it finally happens, right? It's, it's through the power of God. It's through employing these precious promises of God that the growth takes place. Remember, that divine genetic structure is already there. Right? The scriptures tell us that God wants us, Paul says, to be conformed to the image of his son. And that life within, it will reproduce that image if we just diligently cooperate with God and as we use these resources that he's given us. And it's, it's so unfortunate, I think, that so many Christians, they know the Lord in terms of salvation, right? but they lack this fruit and they're not growing spiritually. You know, if you're, if you're here this morning and you're feeling barren or unfruitful spiritually, or if you're just going through a dry season in your walk, perhaps, I think that the Holy Spirit has inspired Peter right, to, to tell you and certainly to remind me to start focusing on these things so that we allow that divine nature that's inside of us to affect those people who are around us by just diligently adding excellence and virtue to our faith. Because the degree to which you add these things to your life is the degree to which you'll be fruitful and productive, Peter says, in your knowledge of the Lord. You're saying, okay, Bill, I get it. We just need to try harder, right? Really, you guys know me better than that. Try harder, right? What does Jesus say in John 15? He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Now, now hear this, because it's only as we abide in the person whose nature has all of these traits, right? the person of Jesus, the only one who ever lived them out daily, it's only as we abide in him that we'll be able to see these things developing in our own lives. So the key to growth isn't just working more diligently. I would say that the key to growth is also that we're abiding more consistently, right? Because as we abide spiritually, the natural result practically is that more and more of that beautiful divine nature is working its way from the vine through the branch, and out of us, right, as beautiful fruit in our life. See, these beautiful characteristics do exist within us, again, because we possess that divine nature, but we need to cultivate them, right, so that they produce fruit in our lives and through our lives. Because if we're not bearing fruit, Peter says in verse 9 that he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. So simply put, right, behind our lack of spiritual growth or development is a poor memory. Right? We forget 
the things that God has done for us through Christ. Right? We forget, right? We're blind. We're we're lacking spiritual insight. We're spiritually nearsighted, right? If we forget what God has already done for us, then, then we're not very excited to share Christ and what he can do with others, right? Or to be diligently working on our personal growth so that we'll be more effective and more fruitful for him. Now, I know for some of us it's less pleasant than for others, but think back for a few moments of who you were before you came to Christ, Right, but remember, remember that now through the blood of Jesus, we've been purged and we've been forgiven and God has opened up our eyes, hasn't he? So rather than just forgetting what he's done, we need to cultivate gratitude in our hearts. Right? We need to sharpen our spiritual vision and try to hone these life-living skills and then just sit back and watch what the Lord will do. Right? Remember, Peter showed us at the very beginning of this letter, right, from his own experience, that as he grew in his knowledge of the Lord Jesus, he grew in his understanding of, and he, he grew in his, his feeling of debt to him and in his desire to be recognized first and foremost as a slave of Jesus, right? Life is too brief, and the needs of the world around us are way too great for us to be walking around with our eyes closed, right? And yet Peter himself, right? Peter himself had been forgetful, denying the Lord. Of course, he remembered, it says in Luke 22 that Peter remembered the word of the Lord, and then he went out and he wept bitterly. So Peter was a man who knew, and Peter was a man who understood what it is to forget. And so the now mature apostle, right, our colorful man of contrast, he concludes this section with this exhortation to all of us in verses 10 and 11. He says, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So if we walk around with our eyes closed, verse 9 tells us we're going to stumble, right? But when we're growing in our Christian walk and, and we're living with excellence, we can walk with confidence because we know that we're secure in Christ, right? If you do these things, Peter tells us, not only will you be fruitful in this life, but you'll also be rewarded eternally, and what I think is amazing is that Peter doesn't give us a 15-volume set of books on how to be fruitful in your Christian walk. But rather, what does he give us? He gives us a few powerful verses in this chapter, right? Okay, if I don't pursue knowledge, I may fail. If I don't add virtue, I may fail. If I don't seek after godliness, I may fail. But if I do these things... Right? Even if I'm not 100% successful 100% of the time, if I do these things, I will never fail, Peter says. Right? And I'll be rewarded eternally on top of that. So Peter's admonishing us to be even more diligent, right? meaning to make every effort. Right? Again, it's true that God has to work in us before we can do his will, 
right? But it's also true that we have to be willing for God to work, and we have to be willing to cooperate and let him do this. As Christians, we don't save ourselves, right? We don't do anything to keep ourselves saved, but it is our responsibility, right, to be increasingly sure that our lives are bearing the marks of a true believer. You know, if we look back to that picture we've been talking about of that newborn baby, right? It doesn't take a whole lot for us to, to, to make us love him or to love her, right? Anything that that little baby does is going to bring a smile to our face because we know that they're capable of very little. And so what happens is that as the baby spits up on himself or cries or even makes a mess in his diaper, oh, we think it's so cute, Right? Again, because we understand that that he's only doing what's according to his nature, and he'll soon grow out of some of these kinds of things. And yet what happens if many years later, that maturing child is still behaving in the very same way? Right? Spitting up on himself, crying, messing a diaper. Well, it's not cute anymore. Now it's almost tragic, right? Because... Because that we know that something has gone wrong here, right? He's not maturing in the way that he should be maturing. And and if we stop for a moment and think of what a Christian's life would look like if they didn't have these virtues, if they didn't work hard adding to their faith, you know, you see lives that would be in turmoil because they'd constantly be making mistakes because of poor judgment, right? They wouldn't have developed the common sense that it would take to just do the simplest tasks well, right? They'd be people who are emotionally unstable, unable to stick with anything that is difficult or takes effort, right? They'd be people who wouldn't have any desire for meaningful personal relationships, and they'd be unable to see why doing anything for anyone else if it didn't benefit them first. Now, Is this dear brother or sister one of God's elect? Absolutely. But they won't experience that victory of moral excellence and freedom from sin living that kind of a life. Do they still have a a calling? Absolutely. But they'll never truly determine what that is and, and won't be able to live it out because of all this inner chaos or this lack of understanding the, the poor life skills that they have. Now, looking around this room this morning and knowing, loving most of you the way that I do, I can very happily say that most of us are somewhere along this road to maturity, right? We're adding these virtues to our lives, right? We're overcoming some of these challenges that God allows to come our way. And I think it's just such a great encouragement to remember on our journey as we slip and as we stumble and as we fall, sometimes all over ourselves, that we already have everything we need in Christ. And we have it whether we're training ourselves in these virtues or not. But if we want to not stumble, you know, if we want to be productive and effective and experience that confirmation from God of our salvation and of our calling, then we will continue to make every effort, right, to add these virtues to our lives, right? We are partakers, say it with me, of the divine nature, right? And so we simply need to nurture 
that new nature, right? Do it with the sound knowledge and the practical wisdom for excellent living that Peter is encouraging us here. Because then we're going to see that we're going to grow in our knowledge and our understanding of the Lord, and we're going to grow in our intimacy with the Lord, and we're going to grow in our fruitfulness for the Lord. Amen. Father, how we thank you, Lord, for the great encouragement that you provide to us in your word, Lord. We thank you for the, the great resources that you provide for us, Lord. We thank you for the divine nature which you've given to us. And, Father, we thank you for the encouragement that you give, Lord, that we press on and develop in our faith. Father, I pray now this morning for anyone who's discouraged in these areas, Lord. Help each one of us to be encouraged by all that you've done, Lord, and and to use that, Lord, to propel us forward. Father, we want to be people and we want to be a church that's growing and that's fruitful for you, Lord, in reaching those around us. Father, we pray that you'd help us to do that. Father, I pray even now as we consider these things, Lord, as you speak to our hearts, Lord, as the, as the men come and receive this morning's offering, Lord, that you would, Father, make us mindful of the things that, that your son did for us on the cross. Lord, help us to be encouraged. Lord, we pray even now, and we ask it in Jesus' name.